This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Wigs. I'm your host, Jim Minns. On this episode, The Wigs delve into three key legal decisions in the United States concerning access to lawful abortion, starting with the seminal 1973 decision of the United States Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade, and then the 1991 decision of the Court of Planned Parenthood v. Casey, and finally the recent decision in Dobbs, State Health Officer of the Mississippi Department of Health v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which overruled Roe v. Wade and Casey, overturning half a century of constitutionally protected access to abortion in the United States. I'll leave the legal analysis to the Whigs, of course, but it's important to say from the outset that where the law restricts women's access to safe and legal abortion services, that does not result in no abortions. Instead, the constraints of the law can compel women to risk their lives and health by seeking out unsafe abortions. It seems clear this latest decision will disproportionately impact younger women and poorer women. One of the consequences of leaving abortion law to the states is that many women will be forced to travel to other parts of the USA if they wish to get a legal abortion, something that will be impossible for many. It is a profoundly important decision, irrespective of one's view on abortion, so without further ado, on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, it's lovely to be back here with the wigs. I've got to my right, digitally via the Zoom methods that we're using to record today because we can't get us all into a studio because there's so much going on in the legal world that we need to cover at a short period of time and it just wasn't feasible to get everyone together. Mr. Emmanuel Kukasherian, how are you, sir? Hey, Jim. I'm well. Excellent. Mr. Stephen Lawrence, how are you, sir? Good, mate. It's good to be here. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for asking me the question back. Felicity Graham, how are you? (laughs) Very, very, very well, Jim. All the better for seeing you three. Likewise, likewise. It's going to be an interesting, fun thing. But until then, I'm going to cut to the first person to take us off on this exciting journey of legal discussion today. There's a lot going on in the global public international scale of uh, law that we're going to be discussing. Uh, I'll be exiting listeners, you'll be happy to know, uh, uh, just so I can partake in the listening element. Uh, and then I'll be obviously rejoining again for fun things. Obviously, I may, may chime in here and there with a question, but you know, uh, depending on what dirty looks I get, I might keep my mouth shut. But to take us off today, Mr. Emmanuel Kukasherian, you've done your research, you're ready, you're primed. We want to hear about what is going on. Take it away. So today we're going to talk about Dobbs, the latest Supreme Court of the United States judgment, which has effectively abolished the right to have an abortion in the United States. Um, It overturned a judgment called Roe v. Wade, which we'll talk about, I think, at the start, just to sort of set the basis for it. Uh, and has been the cause of much consternation in the United States and indeed around the world um, because of its ruling and because of the potential effect on other rights that are cons- that have been considered or found by the Supreme Court in the US. Um, now, can I just say, sorry to cut you off, but just because it became a right because of Roe v. Wade's interpretation of one of the amendments of the 14th Amendment, is that right? Is it something like that? Yeah. So because it's now not a right, that means the, some states can still make abortion legal. 
Well, I mean, it is still legal in many states of the United it's States. It's not a fundamental right. Yeah, in, in some sense, what's happened in the United States is that the law has now become the same as the United States of America law has become the same as the law in the Commonwealth of Australia. That is to say, there is no law at the national level on the issue. It's left to the states to decide. Um, the federal government, the, the, the federal government in America, the, the United States government, could in fact pass a law if it wanted to, in effect, prevent the states from criminalising abortion. Um, it's something that's been promised before. Senator Obama, as he then was, promised it would be the first thing on his legislative agenda. Um, I think the current president also promised to do that, but it hasn't happened. Uh, so what the law is now that is effectively that the states decide, and some have got quite what I would consider draconian rules in place, um, and others have what others might consider quite permissive rules in place. Um, but so what, what happened in Roe was this. Um, Roe was a case brought by someone called Norma McCorvey, and I'm not doxing her because her name has already been published everywhere. Um, but she was given the pseudonym Jane Roe, as they do in the United States. Um, and in 1969, she became pregnant with her third child. She wanted an abortion. She lived in Texas where abortion was absolutely illegal other than, in effect, where it was necessary to save a mother's life. Um, that case, and I won't go into all of the details of the interveners and so on, uh, but that case in 1973, the Supreme Court issued a 7-2 decision uh, holding that the Due Process Clause and the 14th Amendment to the United States, sorry, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution in effect provided the fundamental right to privacy. And that fundamental right to privacy, which is not it's not described there, it's not enumerated in that clause, but as a result of that right to privacy, a woman had a right to have an abortion. Now, that is a really simplistic analysis of that judgment. Yeah, sure. sure. Uh, but that, that's the short of it. Um, can I note really interestingly, for those who are, who are quite interested in, in this sort of thing and want to go back, Sarah Weddington was, was counsel for Roe in that matter. And you can actually hear her oral arguments as made to the court. They're online, and I'll put a link up in my Twitter in, in due course. But fascinating, you can go and hear. Um, what what she was saying because it sounds like a bit of a stretch and they pulled it off well i mean that's that's really the most interesting question underlying all of this case law is that a stretch um i mean we're sort of jumping out of order here but my Sorry. view no no that's all right so i mean my view is that it wasn't a stretch um and it wasn't a stretch because ultimately at the time that the constitution was written um, and this is some, somewhat set out in the dissent in Dobbs, the time the Constitution was written, women were, in some senses, in many senses, not considered people, weren't considered to at least have the constitutional rights um, that men did. And by the time we come to Roe v Wade, I think, um, the, quite sensibly, the court was of the view that women were people and had those rights. Um, now, whether or not that is the proper conduct of a judge is one of the questions in this, in the case law around this. But from my point of view, it doesn't. If you take, if you take a huge step back and you see the American Constitution as something that has charted a course towards liberty, let's use that highfalutin language if you can. 
um, then doesn't that liberty have to extend to women in exactly the same way as it does to men? And anyone who thinks that abortion is some issue that can be compared to injecting drugs into your body or something like that misses the fundamental reality of pregnancy and abort and, and, and child rearing and all that sort of stuff that, that women face. So I don't think it's a stretch, but um, whether or not it was a legally valid approach that was taken in view is something that is, I think, quite properly debated. Um, anyway, so what did Roe say? Um, they recognised that, historically at least, common law did permit the regulation of abortion, in fact, provided for it. It was a indictable crime to perform an abortion after the child, after the quickening, as they called it. That is to say, in short, after there was detectable movement in the womb. Um, that was an indictable crime. There's some evidence that Coke thought that it was a misdemeanor prior to uh, the quickening of the child, although there's some question as to whether or not it ever was in fact a misdemeanor prior to the child, uh, being, prior to, to the fetus quickening, um, to use that outdated language. Uh, but in effect, um, there was at the time of Roe a series of, most states I think prohibited abortion in one way or another. Um, it wasn't really until I think the 1828 that there was a first statute in America that prevented abortion. Prior to that, the common law applied. Uh, and over time, it seems after the 1820s, the laws became more and more restrictive. So it's not like throughout history there'd been this huge restriction on abortion. I mean, I went back and looked at some of the really deep history. And if you go all the way back to sort of um, the 12th century, infanticide, even so afterbirth, infanticide was illegal but not really prosecuted. Um, there was deformed babies could be killed by papal decree or, sorry, as a result of papal decrees as late as the 1500s. So it's far from clear, uh, although it does seem that at least after there was movement detectable in the, in the belly, that uh, abortion was a crime. So what did Roe say? Roe said ultimately that there was a right to privacy and that right is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. Right? Um, it noted that the, the detriment that the state would impose upon a pregnant woman by denying her the choice, both the specific and direct harm um, that, that flowed, psychological harm, mental and physical health, both in terms of the time of rearing the child, but also after birth, the distress, the distress of an unwanted child, um, and so on, and various other factors. Uh, those were all reasons why it was important, or rather that the, the state was imposing a detriment on a pregnant woman by denying her the right to an abortion. Um, now, Basically, um, they concluded, and I'll just read this out, we therefore conclude that the right of personal privacy includes the abortion decision, but this is not unqualified and must be considered against important state interests in regulation. And the way that they dealt with the state interest in regulation was by, in effect, setting up this trimester scheme. So 
pre-third try, pre-first trimester, end of the first trimester, you, you, you can't stop it, right? And then after that, certain limitations would be imposed. Um, the dissent to it uh, noted that it was a big stretch to go from the right of privacy to that. Uh, it's not the ordinary usage of the word privacy. I think that was uh, Rehnquist who said that in dissent. Sorry, that was a um, that was a description of it by Rehnquist. Um, and there was lots of criticism at the time, including by abortion advocates. Um, some of them said that it was short-serving dem dem the democratic process. Uh, some people said that, uh, there's a quote, if the best we can say for it is that the ends justify the means, then we've not only lost the argument, then we've lost a bit of our soul as well. Um, and so on. So there's many criticisms of it, and those criticisms continued for a long, long time, including sort of, even I think uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself was, um, there was some issue surrounding her appointment to the court because she had criticised aspects of Roe v Wade prior to her appointment to the bench. So it was certainly a judgment that, that caused a lot of consternation and a lot of concern. Um, one of the interesting things in there is, well, should the court have actually made the decision at all? Uh, one of the issues was, well, in fact, at the time that they were called to make the decision, she wasn't pregnant anymore. And so did she even have standing to bring the case was one of the issues. And I think, Flick, you've looked into this a bit. Mm. Yeah, it was interesting to look over the history of it because, as you said, Manny, she was pregnant in 1969. Um, she then brought the initial litigation and she was joined in the litigation by some others, a doctor who ran um, an abortion clinic service and was being prosecuted and had two pending prosecutions for having um, provided abortions. And he was deemed to have standing as well at the, at the outset. And then there was also a, a couple who were married. The woman was not pregnant, but they sought to join in the case on the basis that at some point they might um, conceive a child um, through failed contraception or some other circumstances where they wished to have a termination. And they effectively were um, kept out of the case on the basis that that was too speculative and that their rights weren't sufficiently engaged to be able to participate in the case. But then by the time the case made its way up to the US Supreme Court, um, Ms Rowe having succeeded initially, um, at least in terms of getting declaratory, although not injunctive relief, by the time she got up to the Supreme Court um, and the decision was in 1973, the state party argued that basically the court shouldn't determine the case at all because uh, Ms Rowe lacked standing having actually had the baby, not having had the abortion um, that she had sought and having given the child up for adoption. So the court kind of looked at this issue and said, well, hang on a minute, we've got a that there is this concept of 
mootness where a case is moot. In other words, there's no more question to be decided because the controversy between the parties has gone away through circumstances that have since arisen. But the court said, look, here, pregnancy is a significant fact in the litigation. The normal 266-day human gestation period is so short that the pregnancy will come to term before the usual appellate process is complete. And if that termination makes a case moot, pregnancy litigation seldom will survive much beyond the trial stage and appellate review will effectively be denied. And so the court said our law should not be that rigid. Pregnancy often comes more than once to the same woman. And in any event, um, if we're to survive as a species, it will always be with us. And so pregnancy is a classic justification for a conclusion of non-mootness, the court said. And so they said that's not a bar to this litigation going ahead and being determined, notwithstanding that the facts have changed on the ground. And it sort of reminded me of this case that Stevie and I ran in the Supreme Court um, back in 2011, the decision of Lawson and Dunleavy, which was a 2012 decision of Justice Garling in the Supreme Court. And that was the case where we challenged one of the bail conditions imposed on Mr Lawson, which was um, not to consume alcohol for any reason. We didn't challenge that, but the key... Um, part was and to submit to a breath test when requested by a police officer. And when we um, brought the proceedings, he was subject to um, that bail condition. But by the time of the hearing, he wasn't. Um, I think the, the proceedings might have even finalised to sentence as things sort of speed through the local court um, out in Wilcannia. So... I was really concerned that the state would argue that Mr Lawson lacked standing and the case shouldn't be entertained any further by the Supreme Court by the time we got on. We got on really quickly. The decision on bail by Magistrate Dunleavy was made in August of 2011. We filed in November. The court heard us in December. So it was a very quick turnaround by the Supreme Court. But still, you know, not fast enough for the facts on the ground um, to remain the same. Anyway, in that case, the state didn't take the point and I wondered whether that might have been in recognition of how bail is also a creature that's a temporary state of affairs and if no longer being on bail were to cause mootness, then appellate review would effectively be denied in that, that area of law. So I think it's quite interesting to think about the time that litigation takes and the way that these cases um, travel through the courts and how that might legally uh, determine or compromise their their viability. Well, I'm... absolutely, yeah. Oh, sorry, Manny, and I was just going to say, I had no idea, you know, historical uh, little trivia there that uh, the baby was actually born in that, yeah, that famous Yeah, so her place, identity so. um, was kept secret until she decided I think that end of last year to actually tell her story so there's an article you can read in um, in the Atlantic about um, about her and about her life she became a sort of prominent prominent opponent of abortion am I right in thinking that well quite obviously is that yeah, the woman in that case, the plaintiff, did she become a 
sort of quite high profile opponent. I was talking about the baby that was born would be an opponent of abortion. Yeah, no, I was talking about the mother, but it'd be a funny situation to have such a famous case named after an attempt to cease you existing. Mm. It would, wouldn't it? Mm. So, I mean, the, the interesting question about that issue, to my mind, Flick, is what is the court doing when it's making a decision on something that's no longer a controversy? And this is one of the themes that arises in the case law surrounding Roe v. Wade and, and so on, these rights, mm. is in some sense, if there's no controversy, then the court is acting like a legislature because mm. it's not actually determining any rights that, that affect an individual person. It's determining rights generally. Well, I wonder um, whether it's also about the relief that's sought. So both in Roe v. Wade and also Lawson and Dunleavy, both plaintiffs sought declaration, which obviously has an impact beyond the, the individual circumstances of the plaintiff. And Roe also sought injunctive relief, which she was denied initially. And we also sought in for um, Jeremy Lawson the, the quashing of the unlawful breath testing condition. So something kind of direct as to their particular case but I wonder whether in circumstances where you are properly engaging a superior court's jurisdiction to grant declaratory relief that that has some bearing on circumstances where the court might properly consider we should determine this case even though the facts on the ground have changed through the inevitability of life hurtling along or not, as the case may be. Um, I mean, for example, yeah, I mean, I, I think there are there are lots of cases where this type of situation will occur. Now, obviously, you've got to consider whether there's some kind of special quality about something that means then it falls into an exception rather than the general rule. I think you can distinguish between declaratory relief that will have an effect and declaratory relief that would have absolutely no effect. So if, say, a declaration that X is Y means that you're more likely to get a job then or you haven't done something illegal, then that is probably still useful despite the facts changing on the ground, whereas um, you can imagine circumstances where the mere declaration has no effect at all on anything, on any question that affects your life. So... Mm right? Um, And only has a potential future effect on future cases and whether or not courts should be going into that territory is something that is, well, I mean, these cases touch on and are probably worth discussing a bit later on in this conversation, I think. Mm. I mean, Um, my understanding is that in Roe v. Wade, there were actually classes. So it was to some degree representative litigation where Roe represented a class of women that affected were affected by the criminal statute in Texas. Although I do understand that by the time of the US Supreme Court decision, none of the women in the class were pregnant or not pregnant with a 1970 pregnancy, <laughs> I should say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so that's... 
I think it's it's enough really to leave Roe there because we'll come back to it as we're discussing the next cases. Mm. The next I think it case... is important when we come back to to Dobbs to just flesh out this trimester scheme that Roe um, set up. But I think we can weave that into when we talk about Dobbs. Yeah, or we can do it now if you want, if you want to talk through it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's just important for people to understand that Roe didn't set up some kind of hardline binary system where abortion is legal in all circumstances and um, there, there are no constraints that can be made on it. So the three basic markers of the Roe decision is that before the end of the first trimester, the abortion decision and how it's carried out must be left to the medical judgment of the pregnant woman's attending physician. And so states out of it completely. After that, um, then the state has a recognised interest in promoting the health of the mother. And so the state may choose to regulate the abortion procedure in ways that are reasonably related to maternal health, but not impose a ban. And then finally, the state has an interest in um, promoting the potentiality of human life. And that's recognised in Roe as being after viability. And so after viability of the fetus, in other words, after the fetus can be born and live um, outside the womb, the state may, if it chooses, regulate and even prescribe or ban abortion. And then there's also an exception to that recognised in Roe, which is where it's necessary, where the abortion is necessary in appropriate medical judgment for the either preservation of life of the mother or preservation of her health. And so that's quite um, a different construction to the way that the, the Texan law in, in its very extreme um, terms banned abortion except for preservation of the mother's life. So things like rape, incest, health of the mother, none of them were recognised as exceptions um, under that Texan law that was the subject of the litigation in Roe. Yeah. I, think, I think it's worth noting that at least Pro, what they call pro-life advocates would say that the first trimester rule was binary in the sense that it excluded for essentially the state from interfering, making any decision involving whether or not the mother could terminate in the first three months of the, in the first trimester. So in that sense, um, and this is something that sort of comes out as you, as you go further down, that, that was seen as, as a binary decision that excluded the state from that part mm. of, of the decision. Um, so, okay, so time passes. We get to 1992, and there's a case called Planned Parenthood and Casey. Casey was the governor of Pennsylvania. Um, Pennsylvania had passed the Abortion Control Act in 1982. Amongst other things, it required a woman 
uh, who was seeking an abortion to give her informed consent prior to the procedure and, spe and specified that she be provided certain information at least 24 hours prior to the abortion being performed. Now, that was found in Casey to be constitutional, um, which is arguably a partial overruling of Roe. Um, it mandated informed consent of one parent of a minor, uh, which was also found to be constitutional. It commanded that a woman, a married woman seeking an abortion, a married woman seeking an abortion, had to tell her husband that was invalid, uh, that was found to be an undue burden, which I'll come back to, uh, and several other factors that would, several other similar things that were considered by the court. Um, in short, interestingly, that judgment begins, before I get into it, with this phrase, liberty finds no refuge in the jurisprudence of doubt. Um, that's how, that's the opening line of Casey, and it's something that the dissent comes back to. Uh, but what the plurality said in Casey was, look, um, we made this decision in Roe, that is, the Supreme Court made this decision in Roe, and stare decisis, I have no idea how to pronounce that, stare decisis, in effect, commands us to stick with that decision. Um, having said that, uh, the plurality, the, the first judgment, kind of says, well, despite that, we're not sure that this falls on the privacy right, uh, but whatever, whatever, however you get through it, um, there is, it imposes an undue burden on that, on women who are considering abortions and therefore, uh, in effect, the ratio in Roe survives. Um, the plurality says this, at, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one own, one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood were they formed under the compulsion of the state. Right? So the idea being, you can't really be free if you're not able to define your own concept of existence, and surely that has to include the concept of a fetus growing inside you. Um, and that, uh, they went on to say, this is not just a philosophical exercise. Abortion is a unique act. It's an act fraught with consequences for others, uh, for the woman who must live with the implications of her decisions, for the families, for spouses, for the medical professionals, for the society who must confront the knowledge that these procedures exist. Um, and although abortion is conduct, it does not follow that the state is entitled to prescribe it in all instances. That is because the liberty of the woman is at stake in a, in a sense unique to the human condition and so unique at law. And that, to my mind, is a pretty compelling reason um, to, to hang on to the ratio in Roe v Wade, or at least most of it. Um, in any event, they changed the reasoning. Without going too deep into US constitutional law, they changed the reasoning for the basis for the right, uh, but they did so relying on the doctrine of stare decisis. That is to say, it's kind of weird because you're saying, well, we shouldn't change our view because we've had this view before, but we're going to change the way that we get there. Um, they found one of the reasons why they shouldn't change their view is because the decision in Roe v. Wade wasn't unworkable. 
So the idea is that you can change, you know, if a court can come to change its view on an issue if the decision they've made is unworkable um, and the plurality at least thought that it wasn't unworkable. Um, that's an interesting question of itself. I mean, one of the issues underlying all of this is the fact that Roe v Wade has probably been the most decisive decision, uh, divisive rather, decision made in American Supreme Court history or at least recent history um, and it was a matter that caused you know almost every justice appointed to the Supreme Court uh, was well every justice was questioned on this issue it was a basis as to whether or not you would appoint a justice to the Supreme Court uh, you can make a pretty strong argument that the reason Donald Trump was elected president was because he promised to appoint the right judges, quote unquote, right judges on this issue um, when he was running. Uh, and so in some sense, you could make a pretty strong argument that Roe v. Wade undermined the authority of that court or, or set it on this course where it became in effect a one issue body. Um, and that, that was a reason potentially to overturn it. Um, not that I agree with that, but you could certainly make that argument. Um, the court goes pretty deep into this idea, both in both in Casey and also in Dobbs, about well, what are the bounds of judicial precedent, stare decisis? Um, they talk about a couple of pretty famous. Manny, I thought you you consulted the Twitter sphere about how to pronounce your your Latin term. I did. Didn't Didn't you even call Jane? I did, and I, I wanted to speak the. <laughs> I, 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 I thought Speak about secretly recording her and then replacing my every pronunciation I did with, with her voice, but I thought that'd be unfair. <laughs> um, but anyway, so start decisis. Let, let's what that is is the idea that look, the court has looked at these facts before. It's looked at the law before, and has made a decision that this is the law that applies to these facts. And why is that important? It's important because it means that there's clarity as to what the law is. It kind of limits the ability of judges to go off on a lark and make their own law. Um, it's not just, I think this is right, ergo, I'm going to give this decision, but actually, no, this is what the law is and this is what the law says. Um, and that's why I'm compelled to make this decision, says the judge. Now, in, I think, 1960, let me get the date, 19... Uh, 66, the House of Lords said that they would not be bound by their own precedents. Um, and th that was in a short statement delivered to the Lords, and that actually they were free to change their mind. And this was something a little controversial, uh, because why should the law change? I mean, if, if the fiction or the reality is that the, the judges are just stating what the law is rather than creating it themselves, how could it ever change without an act of Parliament? Uh, the House of Lords says it wasn't bound. Part of the justification for that at the time, at least, was that the House of Lords was actually a House of Parliament. So it was in its purview to make law. Now, that's no longer the case. The Supreme Court in the UK has been divorced. It's never been the case here. Um, it's not the case in the United States. And there's an interesting question as to what is the role of a judge in finding the law um, changing the law and should Apex courts be permitted to change the law and should Apex courts be permitted to change the law 
if they think that they, Apex Sport has previously made a mistake in making, in expressing the law. And so when you come to Casey and Dobbs, it's like, well, a lot of people, including pro-abortion advocates, thought that Roe was wrong. Uh, should a judge then be bound by Roe in circumstances where some say it's clearly wrong? Um, where they think, where the judge thinks it's clearly wrong, should they be bound by it? Um, and that question is something that all of the, the that both Casey and Dobbs go into some detail about. Um, they taught, and the other, the flip side to to this argument about stare decisis and and stare decisis, however you say it, and the doctrine of precedent is all those precedents that I think most people would agree were right, um, were rightly overturned. For example, in 1896, there was a case called Plessy and Ferguson that found that segregating uh, black and white people was not a denial of equal protection. Uh, that was overturned in 1954 in a case called Brown and Board of Education, a very famous case, um, where they said, hang on a second, enforced separation is a badge of, in of inferiority and therefore its segregation is a breach of equal protection. So there's an example of a of a change that's made to the law, um, although, as the plurality pointed out in Casey, um, that was a, arguably at least a factual change. That is to say, the court in Brown um, recognised as a matter of fact that enforced separation was a badge of inferiority. So we'd start getting into real philosophical questions about the appropriate role of courts mm. and judges when they mm. come to change the law. Mm. There's a real tension, isn't there? Because on the one hand, the legitimacy of the system or or what the Dobbs Court referred to as the institutional integrity um, of the system depends on this knowability, this reliance on the doctrine of precedent so that there's this degree of certainty, there's this degree of protection that comes where people can take action in reliance on a past decision um, with some certainty around what the legal consequences of their action are and that the law, you know, provides this framework for people's behaviour that can, if it's just constantly changing, will be really chaotic in the way that society then um, can function. But on the other hand, society, its norms, its needs are not immutable and the law should reflect that and and keep at pace with that. Um, yeah. I mean, and, it, it, and there's this sort of tension because, you know, the doctrine of precedence, it's, you know, pr pretty close to the logical fallacy of an appeal to tradition, isn't it? That, well, um, our conclusion is right because it's long been held to be true or superior because it's been said before and so it's right because it was right then. Um, but if that were the the only prism through which decisions were made, then 
our legal system wouldn't wouldn't keep a pace and reflect the values and norms of society as it changes over time. Well, except that, except that, it's not the only prism. What I think the the people who argue strongly in favour of sort of strict precedent would say is that the court's job is to apply the law. And insofar as the law needs updating to match societal norms, there's a role for that. The law can be changed by parliament. Mm. Mm. And judges really shouldn't be straying into that. Mm. Um, and that's and where I think the criticism of the, the sort of trimester scheme that Roe spoke of has received criticism for being legislative in nature um, whereas all of all that the court was really called upon to do in that case, and I think this is what Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, was really critical about, all that the court was really called upon to do in that case was rule on the constitutional validity of this 15-week prohibition with the single exception of preservation of the mother's life. Uh and so Ginsburg said, well, actually Roe v. Wade was a very straightforward, easy case for the Supreme Court because the Texan law was the most extreme in the nation and all that the court needed to do was declare that particular law unconstitutional and put its pen down, but instead what the court did was went much further than that um, and that's not normally the way that courts operate because normally they operate in this incremental way where they just deal with the facts of the case that comes before them and just determines that case and how the law applies to those particular facts and doesn't speak about how another case might be determined which has some, I think, uh, resonance with the, the, the most recent Dobbs decision as well in terms of what was before it and what the, the plurality decided. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, and that's where we get into the issue of fundamental rights vis-à-vis what can democratic processes do. So Justice Black, Black Munn in Casey said this, um, but we are reassured there's always the protection of democratic processes. Whilst there's much to be praised about our democracy, a woman's right to reproductive choice is one of those fundamental liberties that is not to be left to the whims of an election. Accordingly, that liberty need not seek refuge at the ballot box. Mm. So it's like, is this an issue that is so important that the that it's sort of more important than democracy. Yeah. And if it is more important than democracy, then the question is who gets to make that decision? Did it should it be a constitutional amendment to make that decision, which again is an appeal to democracy, or should it be a judge who sits there and looks at the constitution, looks at the law and so on and says, "Well, this is a fundamental liberty now and you guys just have to deal with that." Uh, we go to Dobbs, who is the state health officer at Mississippi, and Jackson's Women's Health Organisation, which is the most recent case. And Mississippi passed an act called the Gestational Age Act, 
that provided that, except in a medical emergency or in case of severe fetal abnormality, a person shall not intentionally or knowingly perform an abortion uh, if the probable gestational age of the unborn human being has been determined to be greater than 15 weeks. So that was the issue. Can you uh, have an abortion in effect after 15 weeks? That was the law that was at issue. The court went a lot further than that and in effect re-decided Roe and Casey. Uh, what did it say? It said, in effect, states may regulate abortion so long as they've got legitimate reasons to do so. Uh, where they do that, courts cannot substitute their social and economic beliefs for the judgment of the legislative bodies. Uh, laws regulating abortion, like other health and welfare laws, are entitled to a strong presumption of validity and must be sustained if there's a rational basis on which the legislature could have thought it would serve a state interest. And that state interest might include the integrity of the medical profession uh, and so on, the, the protection of maternal health and safety and so on. The majority uh, noted that if you were to find, in effect, as Roe found, that there's a fundamental, and Rowan Casey found, that there's a fundamental right to autonomy and the concept of existence. At that level of generality, what you would be doing is licensing fundamental rights like illicit drug use, prostitution, and so on. They, you know, that if, you, if, if we say you can be whoever you want to be, um, and that's an autonomy and your concept of existence is important, well, why can't you shoot up drugs? Um, why? Uh, should you be permitted, and this isn't in the judgment, but this is one of the criticisms made of the judge, of, of the previous judgment, well, why should you force people to take uh, COVID vaccines and so on if, if what you're entitled to put in your body and have in your body is your own? Um, they said, the majority said that Roe was wrong on the day it was decided. Um, it locked out people who wanted to regulate abortion um, short-circuited the democratic process uh, and Casey was wrong. It created this undue burden test that's obscure and sort of unworkable uh, and that had given distortions to important and unrelated principles. One of the issues that um, I think was the most important coming out of, of Dobbs is, well, how far does this go? Um, the majority was very careful to say, or very strongly said, that um, this doesn't affect other judgments, right? Um, said, we have stated unequivocally that nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on pre precedents that do not concern abortion. Uh, but Justice Thomas, who concurred with the uh, leading judgment, he said the resolution of this case is straightforward. It's because the due process clause does not secure any substantive rights. It does not secure rights to abortion. Now, that gives rise, as Justice Thomas said, to questions about other cases like the right of married persons to get contraceptives, to engage in private consensual acts, to have homosexual sex and so on. And whilst Justice Thomas said nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on those precedents, it's really, as the dissent points out in Dobbs, 
only because those things were not argued in front of the court. So it starts to put implied rights as they've been coming in uh, in America really at issue. Yeah, it's a troubling aspect of the decision. I was looking at this article by Zoe Robinson, who's a professor of political science at ANU, the Australian National University, and she's also a US law professor. She studies judicial behaviour and law and politics and particularly constitutional rights. And she wrote an article 10 years ago now called A Comparative Analysis of the Doctrinal Consequences of Interpretive Disagreement for Implied Constitutional Rights. And it's a really interesting article because what she did was she looked at the effect that interpretive disagreement had or has on the development of implied rights and she examined comparatively the implied right to abortion in the United States and the implied right to freedom of political communication in Australia. And she argued that despite the acceptance of both rights over time, that the doubts concerning the initial recognition of the rights as well as interrelated problems of judicial self-consciousness regarding the vulnerability of the implied right in the face of continuing controversy and also the lack of interpretive resources, um, that that's adversely affected their development um, and it seems contributed to their frailty, which in the case of the implied right to an abortion in the US has now been fully realised. Um, and so Robinson referred to both rights at that time in 2012 as, quote, moderately secure implied rights. Now, obviously, their security um, has come under threat, particularly the implied right to an abortion in the US. Uh, and she traced the effects of disagreement on the development of those rights. And so she was looking at how the fact of them being implied rights rather than express rights or enumerated rights affected the the way that the law developed and the sort of reasoning processes and justifications for the rights. And she ultimately concluded that because they're implied rights, that's really stunted the development of these rights in both jurisdictions and that rights by implication are an especially weak form of rights um, protection in constitutional democracies. And I thought it was, yeah, it was just really interesting to look at it. She looks also a lot at the um, this issue of the over-reliance on stare decisis um, in the Dobbs, sorry, in the, in the um, Casey decision and this notion of sort of uncritical adherence to precedent, which highlights um, problems with the foundation of a, an implied right and how that undermines, I guess, the development uh, of legal principle. So, yeah, I'd recommend people check out that article. It's sort of interesting to go back in time and look at the legal analysis about implied rights and their how secure they were considered to be in circumstances now where one of them has been determined not to exist at all. Um... Yeah, you, you can see it here really where there has been ample opportunity for the US 
government, that is the, the, the federal government in the United States, to pass a law in effect enshrining um, the ratio of Roe, uh, and it hasn't done it, including at times where there was in effect super majorities on the Democratic side that may well have been able to carry it through. It didn't happen. Now, mm. if there hadn't been a judgment, then perhaps we would have a law in the United States that prevented, that in effect made Roe into the law. Um, and so in that sense, it kind of does undermine the democratic process. Now, the problem with that argument, of course, is you can say that about anything, mm. say that about any potential right that mm. is imposed, and that's something that the dissent in Dobbs points out. My impression, though, in Australia is that many people believe that they have express, expressly protected human rights that they actually don't. So our constitution is very limited in terms of spelling out express rights. There's the right to a jury trial for prosecutions of Commonwealth offences. That's in Section 80 of the Constitution. But that assumes much less practical importance given that most people facing criminal charges in this country face state prosecutions where there's no right to a jury trial. And then there are some other provisions that are sort of classed in that category of express rights, like the Commonwealth being prevented from establishing a religion and being prohibited from banning its free exercise that's in section 116 and then also section 41 which sort of falls into this category as well where if you're eligible to vote as a state elector then you have a right to vote in a federal election um but yeah otherwise we're sort of left in australia with implied rights so rights implied from either representative and responsible government which is sort of part of the framework of our constitution or rights implied from the separation of powers, the separation of judicial power from legislative and executive power, which in the first case, in terms of rights implied from representative and responsible government, that is where we sort of see our freedom of political communication come in, which is this sort of limited type of free speech right and Which then perhaps also yeah right funny to freedom of movement and association yeah so that's but, sort of that category that class well, Manny, didn't you just <clears throat> you just said it i've heard that should that this situation come before the high court again that there are people who would be willing to you know not star a decisis it's to go back to your earlier point and make a new decision on the implied right to political communication. Yeah, one of the judges, I forget now, one of the High Court judges... Has, Stewart, I think, Danny. Stuart, yeah, has said... Stuart, uh, has in fact invited it, in effect. So, you know, we this right may not exist. Um, one, of the things, one of the things that's interesting to talk about in the context of implied rights is we're accustomed to thinking of the Constitution as this written document, as it is in mm. America and as it is in Australia, but is not like that in the UK. And you can use Constitution as the idea of this sort of overarching statute, which is the way that we look at it, or you can look at it as how is our polity constituted. And if you look at it in that sense, you can kind of get away from this idea of implied rights and actually look at what are the rights that we hold dearest in our polity. Um, 
So I, I don't say that anything sort of falls from that, but it's, it's interesting to think about the negative effect of having a written constitution in that regard, um, in the sense that it limits, courts take that to then limit their power in a way, particularly in Australia where we don't have a Bill of Rights, um, to make decisions that reflect what I think everybody would imagine their rights is. I mean, I grew up on people saying it's a free country. Um, you know, you you know the freedom of speech, and it's every time I hear about these freemen on the land people or people who are, I can't remember what they're called. You know, the, the sort of yeah, these, um, what sovereign are they called? citizens, sovereign, sovereign, yeah, sovereign citizens, citizens, and so yeah. on. And they're like, you know, the Magna Carta says this, and that's why. And I'm like, they teach the Magna Carta in primary school. What they don't teach you is that it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, and so it's kind of like the. The, po the polity, the people believe that they have these rights, but in fact they don't because we're limited by what what our constitution yeah. says. Can I say this? Because I've always wanted to say this on the Whigs, and I was in a conversation with someone where I said this, and I was like, I should remember that for the Whigs. If you look at the current situation now where there is a constitutional um, amendment that gives somewhat a right to possess and potentially possess outside the home a gun in the United States... Would you, Whigs, agree that such a constitutional provision limits the development of the common law to make decisions in the best interests of safety, you know, gun safety? That's not the job of the common law. It's not the job of the common law to make decisions in the interests of whatever. It's the job of the common law to make the decision in the instant case in front of it. And that, I mean, I am a firm believer in that. Um, but when we get to the rear, like when the instant case becomes, should a woman be permitted to control her body, then the answer to that has to be yes. What are the limitations on that? Well, we can go on perhaps to discuss that, perhaps not, depending on what we're talking about when we say limitations. Uh, I'm sort of an absolutist, like there shouldn't be any controls really on that. But in turn, if so, if you go to guns, sure, it does limit that because you say, well, you have you, you're permitted a gun, so that's the end of that conversation. Um, whether that's an appropriate limit is something that can only be decided democratically because it's it's written down. Um, but whether that's what. So just say, for example, because obviously, like the amendment says, the right to bear arms, all right? and arms is interpreted, you know to mean a gun in this instance or a weapon, right? So what happens, you know, 2046 when nuclear weapons are sort of manufactured in a way that they can fit the fit the wrist, fit the hand, and, any, and everyone's allowed a nuclear weapon that can wipe out a city block in their home because it fits the definition of an, of an arm, according to the US Supreme Court. Uh, and then it's the, the, they, they take your advice, Manny, and they say it's up to the states to regulate the safety of these weapons. And the states say, OK, well, there's a ban on handheld nuclear weapons in, in, in homes. And then somebody puts a challenge and it goes to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court goes, well, we're bound to the Constitution, which says you have the right to own these weapons. Why hasn't the Constitution changed? Why hasn't I mean, it changed? Yeah. Sorry. Well, it's, it's like I'm saying, like in, the, in your scenario... If people are, if, if, if the Supreme Court ruled you can carry nuclear bombs under this rule, then I would hope that there would be a constitutional change to prevent that. Now, whether or not there would be, I don't know. And what we start to really get into is fundamental issues about 
just how much democracy is a good thing. I mean, we, you, you're taught that democracy is great and we should have it. Um, we're taught that courts need to protect, it, protect against the tyranny of the majority. But this is something other than that altogether. This is, leaves aside the tyranny of the majority. It's like, what do you do when democracy ain't working, right? And that, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Maybe you do need judges to come in over the top. I mean, that's the traditional role of a monarch, I suppose, is to kind of put the brakes on um, the populace when things go mad and that devolves to the judges. I, I, I don't know. I really don't know. Um, yeah. But anyway, back, back I think, to Dobbs. Um, so what the court did was overrule, basically get rid of the right. And what the Chief Justice, Chief Justice Roberts, said, and he concurred in the decision, that is to say he would have made the same decision, but he disagreed in the reasoning um, because he said, look, while Roe and Casey never made sense, we found the right. It's, a, it, it, it's, it's right. I mean, whatever you say about it, um, the right is right. The question is, what are the limitations on that right? Uh, and he would have found that this law, 15 weeks, whatever it was, was within the bounds of what mm. was permissible and correct. And he said that's in accordance with the principles of stereodecisis and judicial restraint. We don't have to get rid of all of Roe v. Wade to sort this issue out. So we're not mm. going to do it. So we're just and basically going from 23 weeks to 15 weeks. Yeah. Is, is what the Chief Justice would have done. Yeah. A sort of incremental approach, similar in the way that Ruth Bader Ginsburg described her criticism of Roe, which was that she thought that court went too far in protecting, in effect, um, abortion rights by determining too much. And the Chief Justice in Dobbs says, well, the plurality is going too far because all that we have before us is this particular constraint that this state legislature which wishes to impose on abortion and, and is it constitutional or not? Yeah. I mean, he said both the court's opinion and the dissent display a relentless freedom from doubt on the issue that I cannot share. Um, he goes on to say the court's jurisprudence on this issue is a textbook illustration of the perils of deciding a question that is neither presented nor briefed. Mm. And this is that issue. Are you deciding what's in front of you or are you making social policy? Um, and what he's saying is that both sides are making social policy instead of doing their job, which is deciding the issue that was in front of them. Mm. Um, and, I mean, one of the things that's happened in light of that is that these, these judges have been threatened... Uh, the judges in the majority, at least, have been threatened, have been uh, now sort of got 24-hour armed guards and so on. There's death threats that are made against them, like, all the time. Um, and, I mean, there was the crazy fact that the decision was leaked prior to it being published formally, or it's sort of mm. a draft version of it was leaked, um, which gives rise to a whole bunch of other things like contempt and so on, right? So has anyone looked at how similar the leaked version was to the final version of the Alito judgment? Um, I haven't looked at it, but I, I'm I, I read both. I've forgotten the first one, but I think they're basically pretty close. Mm. Mm. It's right. 
as far as I'm aware, they're, they're pretty on par. There was some interesting speculation about who might have been the source of the leak. So there were some mm. people saying that it could have been a member of the court or an employee who was opposed to overturning Rowan Wade because they thought that it would scare them out of doing it. And then there was other people saying it's more likely to be the other way around, um, a person on the conservative side who wants to lock them in. Um, it's pretty interesting. It is interesting. Yeah. Also, I mean, it's quite interesting given how divisive this issue is in the US for people to effectively have pre-warning and be able to prepare for what's to come. Um, it's about 60-40, the stats show, in favour of abortion. That is 60 or so say... Abortion should be legal in most cases. 37, 40% say it should be illegal uh, in most cases. But so. when they say most cases, in terms of those polls, is that, you know, does that drill down to some of these exceptions that often come up in these discussions around, for example, sexual assault um, or... Yeah, poverty and kind of issues relating to the circumstances of the woman and her capacity to. Yeah, I think the formulation of the question, as in most cases, is designed to ignore that to to deal with that issue, right? So, generally speaking, you know, leaving aside whatever exceptions you think are reasonable, should it be legal or should it not Mm. be? Mm. Um, The vast majority happened before thirteen weeks. The modal value, 46% happened in less than six weeks in America. So, um, I mean, and and interestingly, the vast majority of abortions in America are done by people who identify as religious. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know about the division on... on, It's it's really... The the politics of it are just an entire minefield that I think a part of the large problem that the court is trying to deal with, but there's a, there's this passage in the dissent that, that kind of really answered the question for me about where I land on this issue. And it says, and I'll read it out, it's, it's fairly long, but it's worth reading. So they note that the majority says, if the ratifiers of the constitution um, did not understand something as central to freedom, uh, then neither can we. Right? So the majority judgment says, if the ratifiers of the Constitution said this isn't central to freedom, then we can't say it. Right? Or more particularly, if those people did not understand reproductive rights as part of the guarantee of liberty conferred in the 14th Amendment, then those rights do not exist. They go on to say, in the dissent, as an initial matter, we note a mistake we made in, in the preceding sentence. We referred there to the people who ratified the 14th Amendment. What rights did those people have in their heads at the time? But of course, people did not ratify the 14th Amendment. Men did. So it is perhaps not surprising that the ratifiers were not perfectly attuned to the importance of reproductive rights for a woman's liberty or for for their capacity to participate as equal members of our nation. And I think that's where I land on this, is that whatever we understood the rights to be when these constitutions were being written, uh, today, we understand that 
it's a woman's right, you know, as as because women have rights, which they didn't have, you know. We should remind our listeners that our very first episode of season one of the Wigs, way back in September 2019, looked at the issue of decriminalisation of abortion in New South Wales when um, there was the Abortion Law Reform Act passed in both houses of the New South Wales Parliament and that brought in a new age of abortions being made available to pregnant people on request during the first 22 weeks of gestation, which was um, quite a significant change in the law and you can listen to what we had to say about it if you go way back to episode number one, season one of The Weeks. Hmm. Okay, do you want to do fun things? Sure. Cool. Okay. Okay, welcome back to The Weeks. Wow, what an enlightening, timely conversation. Some people here had done their research. Hey, Stephen Lawrence. Anyway, uh, let's move on and talk about uh, fun things. We might as well cut to the man of the hour. Sir Lawrence, how are you and how, what is your fun thing? I don't have a lot of fun things to report. Um, it's quite cold okay. at the moment in Dubbo. I did have the opportunity for a three-week working holiday in Coffs Harbour uh, recently when I had a trial up there. So I got fun. to stay in a nice beachside resort, eat really healthy and sort of attend a quite interesting trial all day. But... Um, yeah, nothing else really to report on the fun side of things. No, oh, well, that's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. We'll grant you that this week. Uh, Emmanuel Kirkasharian, what's your fun thing? Uh, mine's not so much a fun thing. Is a really thing. It's something that's making me really happy, which is that my cousin he has just been appointed an appeal judge of the Corruption Court in Armenia. Mm. Hey, oh, wow! Dr. has just been appointed. It's fantastic. He's appointed by Parliament in a unanimous vote. Congratulations, Judge Kirkasharian. That's amazing. It's great. Well, shout out to you from uh, from sunny Sydney, I guess, and Dubbo and... Is everyone else Sydney? Yeah, you're Sydney flick now, aren't you? Okay, Felicity Graham, you got some fun stuff coming up. I've got heaps of fun stuff coming up, but I wanted to mention in fun things that I recently went to my niece Harriet's band concert. She is in the percussion section. She played the glockenspiel, the bass drum, the snare drum, the cymbals, and she just nailed it. She was amazing. Um, she's only nine. Uh, and, uh, yeah, she really showed the other members of the uh, percussion section how it's done. Go, so Harriet. I had a great time. Yeah, go, Harriet. Awesome, awesome. Are we holding on to your fun thing for <laughs> some other t- another rendition of the wigs? Yes, we will. We will. We'll do it live. Yeah, Jim. we'll do it live. We'll do it live. Excellent. Cool, cool, cool. Um, well, great. I think we've got some school holidays coming up, so I'll be spending some time uh, away. But uh, don't worry, listeners. We will. I will get. I'll get some time to uh, package up this, so that we can all dissect uh, the Wiggs's interpretation of the change in the abortion laws of uh, the United States. It's been fun. It's been fantastic. It's great to see you all again. It's a shame it wasn't in person, but I know that we're all going to be in person very soon. Looking forward to seeing you all. Shout out to Paul Cranny. 
Can we just give Paul Cranning a shout out? One of the one of the instrumental, you know, people in my life, very dear friend of the show, my cousin, very good friend of Stephen and Felicity. I think a passing acquaintance of yours, Emmanuel, has been called to the bar and is now a wig himself. Yeah, for Cranny. Paul Cranny. Go Cranman. Good, good job. Uh, it's uh, it's it's fantastic news. Congratulations to you. We will the see Silver you all Fox. next month. The Silver Fox, that's right. We will see you all next month. Thank you all. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.